Old Pilot's Plain Tales The Things on Your Wings I was a little surprised to get so much positive feedback following my previous aerodynamic story about transonic flight called Sounds Like a Drag, so if you're up for more, then pin your ears back. I know Steph loves a window seat, and I'm sure that many others of you are fond of gazing out of your airliner at the world passing by. I, for one, would rather have a good meal and watch a movie, but I wonder how many of you have glanced at the wing and seen bips and bobs stuck there and pondered on what they're for. Well, ponder no longer. Let's start with a little hairy dynamics and talk about the boundary layer. The first thing to get clear in our minds is that air is a fluid. Well, it's not like you can swim in it, even though Steph clearly tries whenever she jumps out of a perfectly serviceable aircraft, strange girl. But its behaviour is tied to fluid dynamics and it has a certain amount of viscosity. So when passing around our aircraft, specifically the wings, a particle of air directly adjacent to the surface will be pulled along with it at approximately the same speed. Particles further away will also be pulled along but at a slightly slower speed. Further and further away the particles are affected less and less until when far enough away they aren't affected at all. The air in between this point and the surface is called the boundary layer. Its official definition is that region of flow in which the speed is less than 99% of free stream flow. Now boundary layers come in differing depths depending on their type. A laminar boundary layer is very thin and smooth, only seven hundredths of an inch, a little under two millimetres thick. We often like to have a laminar flow over our aircraft as it creates very little surface friction drag, but it's hard to maintain, particularly over a wing. At some point, the laminar boundary layer will transition to a turbulent one. The turbulent boundary layer is ten times the thickness of the laminar one and has a much stronger change in velocity near the surface. To reduce drag, it's beneficial to delay the change to turbulent flow for as long as possible, but the point at which the change occurs is called the transition point, the position of which depends on several factors. The first is surface condition. The laminar layer is extremely sensitive to surface irregularities. Generally speaking, any irregularity which can be felt by the hand will cause a transition of turbulent flow which will spread downstream, causing a marked increase in friction drag. So wings are kept as clean and shiny as possible. The speed of the flow and size of the object are the second factor, and I group those together because they relate to Reynolds' number. No, no, it's not his phone number, but a ratio of inertial to viscous forces within a fluid. I like to think of Reynolds as a Victorian sewage engineer, but his work in devising how best to get our poo down a pipe does indeed relate to more exotic applications. In practice, we can say that on a wing of a given thickness, 
the higher the speed of flow, the earlier the transition of turbulence will occur, and therefore the more friction drag will occur. The final factor is the adverse pressure gradient. As air passes over the top of a wing, it first encounters falling pressure due to the curvature of the wing, but usually after passing the point of maximum thickness, where the lowest pressure is found, the pressure will start to rise again. So initially, airflow will see a positive pressure gradient, which then turns into an adverse pressure gradient. And it has been found that laminar flow just can't be maintained, without mechanical assistance that is, when the pressure in the direction of flow starts rising. One of the effects of surface friction drag on the boundary layer is to reduce its velocity and therefore its kinetic energy. On a curved wing, meeting the adverse pressure gradient reduces boundary layer energy. Eventually, approaching the trailing edge of the wing, the boundary layer stops moving, and beyond that point the flow is reversed. This is the point where the airflow breaks away from the surface of the wing and is known as the separation point. Beyond the separation point, the airflow becomes chaotic. It's a turbulent, eddying mess that no longer provides lift. If we increase the angle of attack of a wing, the pressure drop on the top of the wing also increases, and the amount of lift increases. Yay! Great! The problem is that the adverse pressure gradient also increases, which draws the separation point away from the trailing edge further and further up the wing. Eventually, the amount of lift the wing can produce is so small that it can no longer support the weight of the aircraft and the wing is said to have stalled. If we plot a graph of lift against angle of attack, we will see the slope of the lift curve decline and when the critical angle is reached, it turns into a downward slope. Of interest, in subsonic flight, the breakdown of airflow over a particular wing will occur at the same critical angle, except at high Reynolds number. It's also worth noting that even after the critical angle has been passed, the wing will give some lift, even up to 90 degrees angle of attack. The pattern of a stall over the surface of a wing will depend on wing design. And remember that it's always preferable for an aircraft to be designed to pitch nose down at the critical angle and not upwards, which would exacerbate the stall. It is good if a wing stalls progressively from the root to the tip. This allows early stall buffet from separated turbulent airflow to be felt over the tail surfaces, giving early warning. It retains aileron effectiveness up to the critical angle and avoids large rolling moments that occur if one tip stalls before another. If a design is prone to tip stalling, there are design features that can assist, such as washout, where the wing is twisted so that the tip area has a lower angle of incidence when compared with the root, making it more likely for the root to stall first. Another option might be to attach a sharp leading edge device to force the wing root to stall first. Not elegant, but effective.
A straightforward rectangular wing will usually stall from the root because wingtip vortices cause a reduction in effective angle of attack near the tips. A tapered wing will aggravate tip stalling because the taper causes a lower Reynolds number at the tip. The stall of a highly tapered wing is marked by aileron buffet and wing drop. No tail buffet, a lack of pitch down and poor aileron effectiveness, so not favourable. An elliptical wing has a constant coefficient of lift distribution across the wing span, so a stall progresses uniformly across the wing, allowing it to reach very high levels of lift before the stall. However, aileron control is lost fairly early. A swept wing performs in a similar way to a wing with taper, so not ideal. Whether it is to delay the change from laminar to turbulent boundary layer in order to reduce drag or to alter the movement of the separation point to delay or control the progression of a stall, there are a number of tricks up an aircraft designer's sleeve. These are the things on your wings that you might want to look out for in the future. So after the next bit of information, you will be well armed to bore the poor lady in the middle seat with your knowledge. One of the most common devices on the wing are vortex generators. These are small tabs or veins stuck onto the surface of the wing. They do what it says on the tin. They create small vortices, which are rotating spirals of airflow trailing back from the tab. They create the vortex by being set at a slight angle to the airflow and the swirling air that they create brings high energy air from above into the boundary layer, re-energizing it and delaying its separation. The upside of this is that it allows flight at a lower speed, great for takeoff and landing, etc. Aftermarket kits for the Cessna 172 can simply be glued on and claim to reduce the stalling speed by some 8%. The downside is that laminar flow can't exist past a vortex generator, which has implications for a commercial airliner, but for a Cessna it probably only knocks a couple of knots off the speed. I might point out that a new generation of miniature vortex generators developed by the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm has found that under certain flow conditions, miniature generators could significantly delay the transition from laminar to turbulent flow. Their work continues. An aircraft might just have a few vortex generators to influence a particular part of the wing, or a whole line of them, like on the Hawker Harrier or the Boeing 737. Should you see a fairly large flat plate fixed onto the wing's leading edge, in line with the airflow and often extending down the wing for a short distance, normally not more than a third of the cord, but occasionally the whole cord, you've spotted a wing fence. It's not a white picket fence, but a solid metal barrier, often several inches or a number of centimetres high. You can thank Wolfgang Lieber for this invention, as he designed the first one to go onto the Messerschmitt Bf 109. 
The stall on this fighter initiated at the wing route and cross-span flow very near the leading edge then travel outwards towards the wingtip at high speed. The result of this aerodynamic behaviour was that the entire wing stalled at essentially the same time. Very dangerous. Uh, installation of a wing fence prevented the cross-span flow, thus eliminating the stall problem. So, what's cross-span flow and why is it a problem? Well, imagine looking at the trailing edge of a wing in flight and being able to see the pressure patterns that the wing produces. Above the wing, there'll be a lower pressure than below the wing. Nature abhors a vacuum, or even a little low pressure. So air from below the wing will be drawn towards the wingtip to try and get around it and into the area above the wing to even out the pressure distribution. This means that the air below the wing will continually try to move towards the wingtip and the air above will want to move away. This is cross-span or span-wise flow and it can have unfortunate results. The primary one being the creation of a very large vortex at the wingtip, which creates significant amounts of drag, commonly referred to as induced drag, lift-dependent drag, or vortex drag. Spanwise flow not only occurs externally, but in the boundary layer as well. The boundary layer will be dragged towards the wingtip, where it can pull and lose energy, so not only can a wing fence improve the drag coefficient, but it can also improve the stalling characteristics and controllability at high angles of attack. If the wing fence also creates a vortex that trails down the wing, it will perform the same function as the barrier, but in an aerodynamic manner. You're most likely to see fences on swept-wing aircraft, but the DH-6 Twin Otter is a classic example of them being used on a straight wing. Other features can perform the same function, such as the engine pylons that hold wing-mounted engines, and there are even aircraft with tail-mounted engines that use small versions of the same devices, called vortilons. You can spot them on the McDonnell Douglas DC-9 and, by extension, Captain Jess Mad Dog, where they are used to increase low-speed lift and induce a strong nose-down pitching moment in a normal stall. Also take a look at Pilot Pip's Love, the Hawker 800 and the Learjet 45 as well. A more elegant device might be a wing dogtooth extension or leading edge cuff where there is a zigzag discontinuity along the wing leading edge that gives rise to a vortex that trails over the wing. There are many ways to skin a cat. Nowadays it's very common to see winglets on airliners which serve to reduce the strength of spillage around the wing tip, thereby dramatically reducing the size of the wing tip vortex and the drag that it produces but helps to remove the pressure difference that can be perceived above and below the wing. The original concept of this goes all the way back to 1897, when the English engineer and polymath, Frederick Lanchester, patented wing-end devices. 
the designer of the Heinkel HE162 jet fighter, used drooped wingtips that had been named after him, and the Hörner tips can be found on many aircraft. More recently, Airbus used wingtip fences on the A320 and have now moved to blended winglets that have a smooth junction to reduce the interference drag that occurs at sharp corners. The very latest generation of airliner has raked winglets, which increase the effective aspect ratio as well as diminishing the tip vortices. Of course, I could go into blowing and sucking, but you're unlikely to see much of that whilst commuting across America on your 737. This form of boundary layer control is more often found in military jets, where a stagnant boundary layer is either sucked away through a permeable wing surface or re-energized by blowing high-energy air through ducts across aerodynamic surfaces. There are indeed many other exotic concepts that have yet to make it into common use, and I haven't even touched on high-lift devices such as plain, split, fowler, double or triple slotted flaps or hinged and slotted slats just to name a few. As well as all that, there are the contributions that canards and leading edge extensions have made, but that, as they say, is another subject. If you enjoyed this plain tale, then please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com. <laughs>